Okay, well, as I mentioned, you're in for a, a treat. Uh, Randy Barnett has, over the course of his career, done so many things and carved out a position intellectually in a multitude of different areas, criminal justice ethics, contract law, constitutional law. And I think it's safe to say that a very substantial part of the current agenda in debate and dis, uh, decisions in the courts is being driven by this man. A quick announcement before he comes up, and that is that one of our colleagues, Daniel, will have a lunch table to talk about property rights. And there'll be a, a sign there, so if you're interested in talking about property rights, do that. Randy will be here three days, so if you want to get your book autographed, you don't have to mob him at lunch today. Uh, he will be here for three days, but would be happy to autograph them. Randy Barnett. Well, thank you, Tom, uh, and uh, thanks for having me here at Cato University again. I've been doing this uh, almost since the beginning of uh, Cato University, almost every year, and it's, a gr it's always great to be here. Um, if not at the Rancho Bernardo Inn, then in beautiful, uh, balmy Washington, D.C. You, um, you do know that uh, uh, people say that the uh, 17th, 16th and 17th Amendments uh, were major changes to our structure of government. They were progressive amendments. They greatly expanded the power of the federal government. It actually was the invention of air conditioning that uh, 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 expanded the power of the federal government. Uh, so people had to leave, used to have to leave town about now, and they couldn't do any more damage. And now they can legislate year-round. Uh, so we should just uh, follow John Kerry's advice and eliminate air conditioning uh, for the District of Columbia. Although I would say, since I live in the district, not for residents of the District of Columbia, but for all government uh, buildings, and we would all be better off. Anyway, today I'm going to give the first of three lectures that are based on my new book, Our Republican Constitution. There's a wonderful graphic that the uh, Cato Institute put together in lieu of paying me an honorarium to be here. They thought I would, they thought I would prefer this thing uh, to being paid. Uh, they miscalculated, um, but it is wonderful. And uh, I'm going to give uh, three talks that are based on the book. Um, uh, the, to talk today is going to be about why the Declaration of Independence was right. Uh, tomorrow uh, is going to be uh, explaining the thesis of the book, Our Republican Constitution, in which I contrast um, a Republican form of government with a Democratic form of government and argue that each uh, forms of government uh, basically argue for different kinds of constitutions, and ours happens to be a Republican constitution and not a Democratic one. And finally, on Thursday, I'm actually going to talk about something that's in my uh, in, in the new edition of my book, The Structure of Liberty, which is available outside, I saw on my way in, which is talking uh, a, a talk that's about the modesty of libertarianism, where uh, libertarians are often accused of being radicals. Um, and I have a thesis in which I argue that actually libertarianism is, the, of all the available political theories, is the most modest of all the political theories um, that are available to us. But that'll be Thursday's talk. So today, is about the Declaration of Independence. I think the talk runs about 45 minutes, but I haven't timed it, which would leave about a half hour, or now about 25 minutes uh, for Q&A. At any rate, our country, um, indeed our people, has a discrete starting point, a singular moment in time when it was founded and when its founding was expressly defended. That moment was July 4th, when the Declaration of Independence was approved and announced to the people. Now today, while all Americans have heard of the Declaration, all too few have read it, at least read more than its first sentence, 
Um, and yet the Declaration shows that the Natural Rights Foundation of the American Revolution um, was fundamental. And it provides important information about what the founders believed made a constitution and a government itself legitimate. The Declaration was considered to be a legal document by which the revolutionaries justified their actions and explained why they were not truly traitors. I mean, think about it. The Declaration is what separated this people from the other people in Great Britain. And then there were two tries of government. You had the Articles of Confederation, then you had the Constitution. Um, so there were governments that followed. Uh, there was a third triad government, the Confederation, the, uh, the Confederate States of America. Um, but before that, there was the Declaration, which is actually what set the country up as a country. To justify that, to justify a revolution, it was, thought, uh, it was not thought to be enough that officials of the government of England, the parliament, or even the sovereign himself had violated the rights of the people. No government is perfect. All governments violate rights, and that was well known. So the Americans had to allege more than a mere violation of their rights. They had to allege nothing short of a criminal conspiracy to violate their rights systematically. Hence, the famous reference in the Declaration to, quote, a long train of abuses and usurpations, and then the list that followed. But before this list of particular grievances came two paragraphs succinctly describing the political theory on which this new polity was to be founded. To appreciate all that's packed into these two paragraphs, it's useful to break down the Declaration into some of its key claims. If you have a copy of the Cato Constitution with you, you can pull it out. Now, it starts with the Declaration of Independence, and you can take a look and see what it says. I don't know if you brought it with you, but I'm going to read it for those of you who don't have it. But if you have it, you can follow along. Um, I always like, I always prefer using the Cato Constitution because the Cato Constitution randomly inserts the word liberty throughout the text of the Constitution, and I think that's a great thing. Okay, so the Declaration starts, uh, if you have it, um, let's see, it starts on, well, of course, there's different versions of the Cato Constitution, so I don't even know what the page number is. So if you have it, you'll find the first sentence of the Declaration of Independence. Here's how it starts. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. This first sentence is often forgotten. It asserts that Americans as a whole and not as members of their respective colonies, are a distinct people. To dissolve the political bands revokes the social compact that existed between the Americans and the rest of the people of the British Commonwealth, reinstates the law of nature or the state of nature between Americans and the government of Great, and, and the government of Great Britain, and makes the laws of nature the standard by which this dissolution and whatever government is followed is to be judged. These laws of nature are based on the regularities found in nature and discoverable by reason. As Reverend Eliza Goodrich later explained in an election sermon delivered on the eve of the Philadelphia Constitution Convention to people who were on their way off to be delegates at the convention, he said, quote, the principles of society are the laws which Almighty God has established in the moral world and made necessary to be observed by mankind. 
in order to promote their true happiness in their transactions and their intercourse. These laws, he said, may be considered as principles in respect of their fixedness and operation. And by knowing them, he said, we discover the rules of conduct which direct mankind to the highest perfection and supreme happiness of their nature. They are as fixed and unchangeable as the laws which operate in the natural world. Human art, in order to produce certain effects, must conform to the principles and laws which the Almighty Creator has established in the natural world. This is, that's Eliza Goodrich from his sermon. Now, these natural laws govern every human endeavor, not just politics. They undergird what we might call normative disciplines, by which I mean those bodies of knowledge that guide human conduct, bodies of knowledge that tell us how we ought to act if we wish to achieve our goals. It's useful to distinguish between normative disciplines and descriptive disciplines. Descriptive dis disciplines like biology or physics or astronomy, these are all disciplines by which we try to understand sort of what is as best we can. And by the way, that always means distorting what actually is into a, a framework in which we as human beings can understand something that really is too complicated to comprehend as a whole. That's the reality. So everything we do in these disciplines are artificial in the sense that they allow us to translate reality into something simple enough that we can understand it. That's what a descriptive discipline is. A normative discipline is a discipline that guides human conduct. It tells us how we ought to act. Physics and biology don't tell you how you ought to act. They just just describe stuff. But there are disciplines that do tell you how, to ought to act, how we ought to act, like, for example, medicine. That tells you how you ought to act if you want to make people well who are ill. Or architecture tells you how to ought to act if you want to build, design a building in which people can live uh, and, and perform comfortably. Or engineering. Um, or agriculture, if you want to grow crops. These are all disciplines. These are normative disciplines. These are not, sci these are not descriptive disciplines to just tell you what it is. It tells you, here's how you ought to go about doing something if you want to achieve your purposes. And then the discipline actually defines what those purposes are. Goodrich offered, himself offered examples of this from agriculture, engineering, and architecture. Those were his examples of what I'm calling normative disciplines. Here's Goodrich. He who neglects the cultivation of his field and the proper time of sowing may not expect a harvest. He who would assist mankind in raising weights and overcoming obstacles depends on certain rules derived from the knowledge of mechanical principles applied to the construction of machines in order to give the most useful effect to the smallest force. He's talking about gears and pulleys and things like that. And every builder should well understand the best position of firmness and strength when he is about to erect an edifice. In other words, what he's saying is to ignore these principles is nothing short of denying reality. That's what makes it irrational to ignore these principles. You're denying reality. Like jumping off a roof while imagining that you can fly. As Goodrich put it, and this is my favorite sentence actually of the whole uh, sermon, for he who attempts these things on other principles than those of nature attempts to make a new world, and his aim will prove absurd and his labor lost. To do something on principles other than those in nature is to make a new world, a world other than the one we live in, 
And if you try to live in that world rather than the one we live in, your aim will prove absurd and your labor lost. He concludes, no more can man be conducted to happiness or civil societies united and enjoy peace and prosperity without observing the moral principles and connections which the almighty creator has established for the government of the moral world. That's sentence one of the Declaration of Independence to talk about what the laws of nature are really all about. I mean, I'm using Goodrich as an example. He's a very obscure fellow. His son ended up being a congressman from Connecticut. He himself was a clergyman in Connecticut. I'm using him as an example, not because he was famous, but in fact, because he was not famous. This is just what your average, ordinary clergyman thought about natural law and the order of things. Of course, he was your natural, ordinary clergyman. They chose to give an election sermon to those people who were going on to Philadelphia to write a new constitution, but, so he was probably quite prominent as that. But still, he, he's not somebody who we know today. So after referring to these laws of nature, the Declaration goes on to assert the existence of natural rights in its most famous sentence, the sentence that everyone knows. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Again, this is the most famous line in the Declaration. On the one hand, this will become a great embarrassment to people who permitted chattel slavery. On the other hand, making public claims like this has consequences, and that's why they make them publicly. And by the way, the founders who made this claim understood its conflict with slavery. This was not something they didn't know about. This is something they were quite well aware of when they said it. They say things like this, people say things like this, so they can be held to account. This promise, this promise of this sentence of the Declaration will provide the heart of the abolitionist case against slavery in the 19th century, which is why late defenders of slavery eventually came to reject the Declaration of Independence itself. Some, one, of, one of them referred to the Declaration, which Jefferson said in the Declaration, as a farrago of nonsense. That's what defenders of slavery had to go to. That's the lengths they had to go to in order to defend their practice later from the Declaration. What are unalienable, or more commonly, even then, inalienable rights? No one knows exactly why it was called unalienable. At some point on its way to the printer, it got made into unalienable rights. There, there's a lot of unconventional spellings and word, wordings and punctuations in those days, so it's hard to know exactly. I don't think there's any significance that it was called unalienable as opposed to inalienable. Inalienable was also a very common term in the day. Here's what inalienable rights are. Inalienable rights are those you cannot give up, even if you want to, even if you consent to. You still can't give them up. Unlike other rights you have, alienable rights, that you can waive or transfer to other people. So you have, an, you have an alienable right to your car and your house and your stuff and your laptop and uh, you got an alienable rights to all those things, but there are certain things, more general and more abstract rights, like as you'll see, the right to acquire property is something you cannot give up. You cannot, that's an inalienable right. And we can talk later about what makes a right alienable versus inalienable, but I don't have time to get into the details at this point. Why did they claim, however, these rights were inalienable? What was the purpose of claiming that? Remember, they only had two, they were only working with two paragraphs here. So everything had to do a job in this, these two paragraphs. So why did they say these rights were inalienable? What, what, what significance was that to them? That's because they wanted to counter England's claim 
that by accepting colonial governance, the colonists had waived or alienated their rights. They said, well, look, you let this go on, therefore you've consented to it. And they basically wanted to argue, well, these rights are inalienable. And it wouldn't matter, you know, we did, first of all, we didn't consent to it. That's number one. But number two, even if we had consented to it, it wouldn't matter because they're inalienable. We can always take them back. That's what an inalienable right is. The standard trilogy throughout this period was not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was somewhat of a Jeffersonian innovation. The standard trilogy was life, liberty, and the right to acquire property. And here is, in fact, the more canonical version of what the natural rights of human beings were in the day. And it was drafted by George Mason um, to part of the Declaration of uh, the Virginia Declaration of Rights. He drafted it in May of 1776. And as I say, as I talk about in my book, Jefferson actually had a copy of Mason's draft that had basically just been written when he was in Philadelphia writing the Declaration of Independence. So he had, his, he had Mason's draft in front of him, and he was cribbing from it, he was, uh, and he condensed it. But here's what Mason's draft was. He said all men, that all men are by nature um, equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights, namely the rights of life, liberty, and the, uh, life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Um, so all men are by nature created equally free and independent and have certain inalienable rights, namely the rights of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property. It's Mason's formulation that will go on to be canonical in the United States. Not even the Declaration was this canonical. Five states adopted it as part of their state constitutions. The Massachusetts, Constitu the Massachusetts Supreme Court uses that language to, argue, to, to decide in the, in the 1780s that slavery is unconstitutional in the state of Massachusetts. So it's very significant. It actually goes on and influences the, the uh, Republicans who drafted the 14th Amendment. OK, next sentence. That to secure these rights, Governments are instituted among men. That's the first half of the next sentence. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. An another overlooked line, which expressed the central underlying assumption of the Constitution. The assumption of individual natural rights. That's the previous sentence. And this is the sentence that says what the purpose of government is, which is to secure the rights that were mentioned in the previous sentence. It identifies the ultimate end or purpose of governments as securing the natural rights, which the previous sentence affirms, is the nature, is the measure against which all governments, whether of Great Britain or the United States or any government at all, is to be judged. So here you have it in two sentences, basically the philosophy of the United States government, of the US, of the United States, the United States of America, and that is first come rights and then comes government. First comes the inalienable natural rights of each and every person. And then to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. And I should mention among men, meaning governments are not us. They are a subset of us. And they are tasked with a certain job. The job is to protect our rights. The next part of that sentence says, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. Notice it says just powers, not all powers, not unlimited powers, not every conceivable power, but only their just powers from the consent of the government. Now, today, there's a tendency among people, conservatives and progressives alike, 
to focus entirely on this portion of this sentence of the Declaration to the exclusion of the first part of the sentence and the sentence that precedes it. That is, everything now, the Declaration is turned into a consent of the governed document, that last part of the sentence. That's all that matters is the consent of the government. But we need to recognize that both parts of that sentence are there, and there is a tension that exists between the first part of that sentence and the second. Remember, natural rights are rights that are thought to exist apart from any consent of others. They come first, and they belong to each and every one of us. No one else, we don't get them because other people have consented to them being there. They're thought to be inherent in the individual, and indeed were often called inherent rights. That was a synonym for natural rights. But claims about rights are highly disputed. Even philosophers disagree about their extents, their existence and the scope of the rights we may have. So how practical is it to protect natural rights and trump the consent of the governed, which is the second half of the sentence, as reflected, let's say, in legislation that's enacted by elected representatives of the people? How, how, how practical is it to trump that with claims about your natural rights, claims about your rights or claims about justice? And is this not especially problematic, given the unelect that unelected judges are the ones who must decide whether such rights do or do not exist or have or have not been violated? In practice, then, people think, is it not better to emphasize the second part of this sentence, the consent of the governed part, and de-emphasize the first, the to secure these rights part? Leave it up to the government to decide how to secure these rights. Leave it up to the elected representatives of the people to decide how to, to secure these rights. Leave it up to the consent of the governed. But if you think about it, I mean, that's, so this is an objection, or this is emphasizing the second half because the first half, the rights part, is supposed to be um, problematic. But in fact, the consent of the government is, is also problematic. We can focus on that. First of all, People can consent to just about anything. For example, no one can justly punch another person in the face, but anyone can consent to be a part of a boxing match where you get punched in the face. Rape is a crime, but people can consent to sexual relations. So you can consent to just about anything. But that raises a, ver a second and very uh, difficult issue, and that is what exactly constitutes consent? and whether someone has, in fact, consented. When it comes to governance, especially what is consent, is, is, the express cons is it the express consent of each and every citizen that's required, which, of course, is impractical, and therefore people don't think that's what's required. They say, well, that can't be it, because you can't have consent of everybody. Or is, it, or is there consent implied by the failure to leave the country? Is that when you consent? when you fail to go somewhere else. But that would suggest that anybody who stays in the country has consented to anything the country might do. That doesn't sound right. Did the Jews who chose not to leave Germany consent to everything that happened after that because they chose not to leave? That doesn't sound right. Does the consent of the majority override that of the minority? So now the minority is stuck with whatever the majority thought. That's what the Democrats thought when they argued for popular sovereignty in the territories and said that a majority vote got to decide if a majority could hold a minority in slavery. They called that popular sovereignty. 
That doesn't sound right. Where's the consent there? In what sense has an individual consented to be restricted by laws enacted by a mere handful of other individuals called legislators? You know, Georgetown Law is, is located about a few blocks away from here and up the street within the shadow of the Capitol. 535 people are there calling themselves representatives or being called representatives. 435 in the House, 100 in the Senate. Uh, when a majority of them say something, have we consented to it? Have I consented to it? That's kind of unrealistic. These questions make clear, I think, that the consent of the governed raises at least as many issues as it solves, and is at least as many issues as natural rights raises. In practice, I think, I find that people tend to favor one of these concepts over the other, natural rights over, just, or over consent or consent over natural rights, and it leads them to stress one part of the sentence of the Declaration, the first part, or the second part of that sentence of the Declaration. The fact that rights can be uncertain and disputed leads some to emphasize the consent part of the sentence and the legitimacy of popularly enacted legislation over anything else. But the fact that there is never unanimous consent to any particular law, or even to government itself, leads others to emphasize the rights part of the sentence and the, legitim and the legitimacy of judges protecting the fundamental or human rights of individuals and minorities. However, I think if we take both parts of these sentences, the sentence seriously, not just one or the other, I think they can be reconciled. And they can be reconciled by distinguishing between, first of all, the ultimate end or purpose of any legitimate governance, that's the first part of the sentence, and secondly, how any particular government gains jurisdiction to rule. That's the second part of the sentence. What the second part of her sentence is not referring to all the laws that may be passed by government. It's referring to which government is the actual existing government of a particular territory. While the protection of natural rights or justice is the ultimate end of governance, particular governments only gain jurisdiction to achieve this end by the consent of those who are governed by it. So it's basically which government, at this point, all they're talking about is, are we going to be governed by Great Britain or are we going to be governed by the United St a new government in the United States? They're not talking about all the powers that that new government in the United States may justly exercise. That's something that's still going to be constrained by natural rights. This reconciles both parts of the sentence, so they're not at war with each other. Now, in my book, I discuss this tension at some length. In the balance of this lecture, I'm just going to simply defend the Declaration's claim that the ultimate purpose of government is to secure the inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But before I do that, there's one more passage of the Declaration I want to read to you, or you can follow along and read for yourself. And that's this one. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Before I say anything more about that, I just want to point to the term them, because what I'll talk about tomorrow is the Republican versus Democratic vision of the Constitution, which is going to turn on two different readings of the words, we the people, the first three words of the Constitution. And I'm going to argue that we the people can be interpreted as a group or we the people can be interpreted as individuals. And you'll notice that when 
The declaration refers to the people, he refers, it refers to them in the plural as them, not it. It's not a single group in the actual Declaration of Independence. It's them. It's a, people is the plural of individual persons. Okay, that was just a side. We'll connect that up tomorrow. This passage that I just read restates the end of government, which is human safety and happiness. That, by the way, is also from Mason's draft. So you see, when, Je when Jefferson took Mason's draft, he put some of it over here as opposed to over there. And it identifies the form of government as simply a means to the end of protecting human safety and happiness. Therefore, the people have a right to alter and abolish any form of government that is destructive of these ends as the Americans declared the British government to be on the list of grievances that they then provided. So the political theory announced in the Declaration of Independence can be summed up by the following proposition. I've already mentioned it to you. First come rights, then comes government. According to this view, the rights of individuals do not originate with any government, but pre-exist its formulation, its formation. The protection of these rights is the first duty of government. It's the reason why government is supposed to exist. Even after government is formed, these rights provide a standard by which its performance is measured, and in extreme cases, its systemic failure to protect these rights can justify its alteration or even its abolition. At least some of these rights are so fundamental that they are considered to be inalienable, meaning they are so intimately connected with one's nature as a human being that they cannot be transferred to another even if one consents to do so. Now, all this is very powerful stuff, just in two paragraphs. At the founding, these ideas were considered to be so obviously true as to be self-evident. Today, however, the idea of natural rights is obscure and controversial. Oftentimes, when the idea comes up, they're deemed to be archaic or religiously based. Moreover, the discussion by many of natural rights as reflected in the Declaration's claim that such rights are endowed by their creator leads many to characterize natural rights as religiously based rather than secular. So it's useful to attempt to understand natural rights the way the founding generation that wrote and ratified the Declaration of Independence understood them. As the explanation uh, by Goodrich that I read to you earlier shows, these laws of nature are based on the regularities of nature. And then the almighty creator is identified as the source of that order. So natural law operates to guide human conduct even if the natural order was not divinely established. In other words, the reason why you have to follow certain rules in order to raise crops that are going to succeed and then you'll be able to eat them is because the world has a certain order in it and you have to discern what that order is. The explanation of why that world has an order in it is because it was divinely created with an order. But even if it wasn't divinely created with an order, as long as it actually has the order, you still need to do it. These, these rules are still as imperative, regardless of how the order came about. Did it come about through a big bang, or did it come about actually through divine creation? It doesn't really matter. For the founding generation, God was the source of the order, and therefore the nature on which reason could discern those natural laws. Even if there is no deity, Crops will fail and buildings will fall 
if these laws are ignored. So too will societies fail to achieve the condition, to provide the conditions under which human beings can pursue happiness while living in proximity to each other if their natural rights are not respected and protected. As the renowned Dutch natural rights theorist Hugo Grotius famously and in his day quite bravely affirmed, quote, what we have been saying about the existence of natural law of justice would have a degree of validity even if we were to concede what cannot be conceded without the utmost wickedness, that there is no God and that the affairs of men are, or that the affairs of men are of no concern to him, which was in some respects the deist belief that there was a God, but he didn't really give a crap about us, so to speak. So um, um, it's, anyway, Grotius said, these, these arguments that I'm making would even be valid if there was no God, but you know, even saying what he said the way he said it actually ran the risk of heresy and punishment for having said what he did. But were the founding generation right to believe in natural rights? That's the next question. First of all, I'm just explaining to you what they believed. Now the question is, were they correct to believe this? How do, I de how do we identify these rights? In what sense can we say that they precede government? Now, I've presented a fuller defense of natural rights in my book, The Structure of Liberty, Justice and the Rule of Law. As I mentioned, you can, there are a few, I saw a few copies for sale uh, outside. Uh, it's a new edition, I should tell you. For those of you who don't, wanna, who don't get it here, it's available on Amazon at a very reasonable price in paperback. Uh, the new edition was. Um, I'm just going to summarize the analysis that I present there. And to do so, it's useful to distinguish between natural law and natural rights. Sometimes people run these two things together. I think it's useful to separate them. The idea of natural law is very mysterious to, that, to us today. We are accustomed to thinking of law as the command of the legislature, or perhaps the command of a government official or a judge that's enforced by a government. That's what a law is. A natural law, whatever that might be, hardly seems worth the paper that it's not written on. How can there be a law in any meaningful sense in the absence of government regulation and enforcement? But when we think of the disciplines, going back now, if we think of the disciplines of engineering or architecture, the idea of natural law is not so mysterious. For example, engineers reason that given force, given the force that gravity exerts on a building, if we want a building that will enable persons to live or work inside it, then we need to provide a foundation, walls, and roof of a certain strength. The principles of engineering, though formulated by human beings, are not the product of their will. The physical law of gravity leads to the following natural law injunction for human action. Given that gravity will call us, cause us to fall rapidly, if we want to live and be happy, you better not jump off a tall building. That's true, right? These principles must come to grips with the nature of human beings and the world in which human beings live. They operate whether or not they are recognized or enforced by any government, in spite of any regulations that may be enforced by government. And though they are never perfectly precise and always subject to incremental improvements and sometimes even breakthroughs, what we take to be natural laws are far from arbitrary, and we violate them at our peril. Unlike the physical sciences, which I, I mentioned are merely descriptive, these disciplines of engineering and architecture are normative in that they instruct us how we ought to act. 
given the nature of human beings and the world in which they live and the purpose at hand. Nor need one be an engineer or an architect to formulate uh, similar laws. I already gave you one you can formulate on your own. Don't jump off a tall building if you want to pursue happiness, right? So what's the difference between natural law and natural rights then? In my view, natural law is a more general idea. I already talked about engineering, architecture, medicine. That's all subject to a natural law, including, for example, how we live our own lives. That's natural. That's governed by natural law, too. If you want to be happy, here's what you have to do. What Aristotle called those things you have to do, he called those the virtues. And the things that you were not supposed to do, the way you were not supposed to live, he called those vices. So if you want to be happy, you have to be virtuous. If you, if you, don't, if you, if you are vicious, then you will be unhappy. And that's based on the nature of human beings, the nature of human beings, our nature, and the world in which we find ourselves. That's natural law, but we could call that natural law ethics, how we ought to behave as human beings, not as doctors, not as engineers, but simply as human beings is a matter of ethics. It's a matter of natural law ethics determined by our nature and the nature of the world we find ourselves. What then are natural rights? Natural rights is an answer. It's the use of a natural law reasoning to answer a different question. The question that natural law ethics is trying to answer is, how should we live our life? The question that natural rights is trying to answer is, how should society be structured so people can pursue happiness within it? That's just a different question. So a natural law method can be used to apply to a bunch of different questions. How do you grow crops so people can eat them? How do you make people well? How do you erect buildings? How do you live your life? And then, how do you structure society so that people can pursue happiness while living in proximity with each other, meaning their actions will have effects on each other? If they're all isolated from each other, you don't need to worry about it so much. But if you're all living close to each other where you can affect each other, how do you structure that? so people can pursue happiness. Natural rights are the answer to that question. How should society be structured? These are the principles of society, which is what Goodrich said, called them, the principles of society um, that govern how society should be structured. If we want persons to be able to pursue happiness while living in society with each other, then they had best adopt and respect a social structure that reflects these principles. Now, it's true that any such natural law principles may be more difficult to discern and consequently more controversial than the principles of engineering or architectural. Perhaps, perhaps not. I think most people believe that murder, rape, armed robbery, assault, these are all wrong. Actually, there's pretty universal consensus about that. There isn't consensus about things that go beyond those things, you know, whether those are also wrong, but there is a pretty good consensus about the core of what's wrong. So that's not something about which most people really disagree. But the reason why there is disagreement is because human beings are very complicated, very complex, and the world we find ourselves in is also very complex. Um, and not only are we complex, but we're all self-directed. We all you know, get up and do what we want to do, right? So that makes things even more difficult. So for all these reasons, it actually is not an easy problem to solve. But the mere existence of controversy, the mere existence of difficulties, doesn't mean there's no answers. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking for answers. Nor does the fact that we can't see, hear, taste, or touch these principles. 
I always get that, you know, where are these natural laws, right? Well, you can't see, hear, taste, or touch them, so therefore they're not real. But think about this. You can't see, hear, taste, or touch the principles of engineering or architecture either. You can't see, hear, taste, or touch how you practice medicine. They're also invented. That doesn't make them arbitrary. It doesn't make them, they could be anything. They, they are socially constructed, they're humanly constructed, but they're humanly constructed according to what we find, the world we find ourselves in. The idea that the world, including worldly, worldly governments, is governed by the laws or principles that dictate how society ought to be structured in the very same way that such natural laws dictate how buildings ought to be built or how crops ought to be planted was well accepted by Americans at the time of the founding. Indeed, that assumption, first come rights and then comes government, was so universal as to be considered self-evident. When, some mention, when, when you talk about natural law to some folks, they ask you, well, where are these natural laws? Show me them. This is like a version of the see, hear, taste, and touch idea. Show me where they are. Um, but again, I just want to say, this is a, that's, a, that's an argument, but here's, the, here's a counter-argument. We don't demand humanly developed principles of engineering be found somewhere in the bricks and the dirt. It would be kind of a stupid question. Show me where the principles of engineering are in the ground. Here's some steel. Show me where the principles of engineering are. By the way, show me how you make steel in the steel. That, these are nonsensical questions, right? And yet everyone accepts that these principles must be followed in order for bridges to stand and buildings not to fall. And the principles of society that Goodrich spoke about are, have the same status. They must be respected if people are to pursue happiness while living in society with each other. Now, this analysis does assume that happiness, peace, and prosperity, what Goodrich talked about as the ends of society, are good things that we ought to achieve. It does, it's not an argument for why we ought to pursue happiness, only that if you want to pursue happiness in society with others, here's how you do it. But once again, think about it. The normative disciplines of agriculture, engineering, and architecture are also based on the assumption that human existence and happiness are worthwhile. They don't provide an argument for it. They assume it. If you want to build buildings and bridges that collapse, well, then feel free to ignore these natural laws. If that's what you want... But that's not what people want. That's not what people are trying to get at. But how do you organize a government that protects these fundamental rights from domestic and foreign threats? While not at the same time itself posing the greatest threat to the rights of the people. Remember, governments are created to secure these rights. The first duty of government is to protect these rights. Now you've created a government. How do you protect yourself from that? How do you protect those rights from the very instrument that you've created to protect them? The founders of the United States attempted to establish this by means of a written constitution. But as I'm going to explain tomorrow, there has long been two conflicting visions of the constitution based on two conflicting conceptions of popular sovereignty. What I call the democratic constitution and the republican constitution. Tomorrow, I'm going to explain the difference between these visions and why that difference makes so much difference. But for now, I can take your questions and your comments. Thanks.
okay, I guess the, you guys know the procedure already. You see, we, all have the, we already have the principles of uh, social order at Cato, which is if you want to ask a question, you line up at the mic. And why is that? Well, partly it's because we have to have an order in which questioning takes place. Partly it's because the mics have to be activated, and so we have a natural law of the situation that has developed. And you can go first, sir. Thanks. So I, uh, I I'm going to I'm gonna switch to the lav mic if that's going to be turned on. It's not turned on yet. Hold on one sec. Okay, good. All right. So Thanks. I have, a, I have a question about the descriptive versus normative difference. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering whether agriculture and architecture can really be housed within the normative. So, for example, they might tell us if you want a building that stands, you need to follow these principles. But they can't tell us whether we ought to build a skyscraper or a cathedral, right? Whether we should plant corn or potatoes. And so I'm wondering, so to put that in the natural law basis, it might say, given the goal of uh, prosperity or peace or whatever, um, follow these principles. But is there anything within natural law or even natural rights that say it is, say, liberty that ought to be the end goal as opposed to equality or you know creative achievement or something like that can you can you get past the assuming this part like can you can you achieve norm normativity within the the natural law or natural rights piece this is a, a really good question I was bracketing that for purposes of this analysis just to get us to this point um, and let me just restate the question if I may um, the issue he, it, it, this is a question that goes back to the point I made that essentially natural law reasoning can be viewed as if given if then reasoning, given if then, given the nature of human beings and the world in which we find ourselves, if you want to achieve certain ends, then you have to adopt certain means. Given the nature of human beings and the world in which we find ourselves, if you want to adopt, if you want to achieve certain ends, then you have to adopt certain means. So what differentiated all the different disciplines was what goes in the if, which are the ends. And the ends were make people well, erect buildings, grow crops, live a good life, etc. These are what, this is the if part. And then comes the, the natural laws part, which you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. This is a question about the if part. And that is, what's the argument for the if? And I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't want to uh, seize on this, too, I don't want to emphasize this too much, but one of the things you said at the end, and I, I don't want to use this to dis actually distract from the importance of your question, but you said, is there an argument that liberty is the end? And I don't think liberty is the end per se. Now, other people disagree. There are actually arguments about why liberty is the end. I think liberty is the means to the end, and the end is happiness, the pursuit of happiness. Um, and so liberty is just a necessary means for the pursuit of happiness. And now, one of the things that Lon Fuller, this famous Harvard law professor, once taught is that means and ends can shift depending on your focus. So you could say that, for example, rights are an end, like an end of government. I already said rights are the end of government, right? First come rights, then come government. Government's there to protect rights. Rights are the end. But then rights themselves, if you shift and look at them, they themselves can be the means the means of pursuing happiness in, social, in a social society. So what is an end and what is a means depending, depends on our focus. So I don't necessarily accept the proposition that liberty is the end, but that's a side issue. How do you determine what the ends are? And I do think you can do this. It just requires different kinds of arguments. 
Uh, not the kind of natural law argument I've just made. There are other natural law arguments. There's teleological natural law arguments that are based on, for example, the nature of human beings are such that in order to be happy, we have to act in a certain way. And that acting in a certain way, um, uh, first of all, the pursuit of happiness is not an option. It's not a choice. It's something people do anyway. It's something that they always try to do. They can just do it poorly or they can do it improperly. Uh, just as a, uh, the Aristotelians love to talk about acorns growing into oaks, acorns have a potential that they, it is actualized or not actualized. It's not a matter of will, what the acorn is going to be. What the potential of an acorn is, is not up to the acorn to decide. It's part of its nature, what it is. And similarly, human beings, it's not up to us to decide what our end is. It, it simply is, given the kind of creatures we are. This is an Aristotelian and a Thomistic way of identifying what the ends are for us. Uh, I, as you can see, I'm somewhat familiar with these because I'm very sympathetic with this approach. But I distinguish that. And it is a ver it's a variation on natural law ethics. Um, in fact, my teacher, Henry Veach, who was a great Aristotelian philosopher, was an ethicist, first and foremost, not a political theorist. Um, this is the way one can answer that question. But I was starting with the prop, I was limiting my art, my focus to the given if then, because that's about something which I think there is a lot of consensus. We can start with the consensus that we have, that the pursuit of happiness and peace and prosperity, whatever you want to say, are what we want, are what people want, and now just talk about the imperative of doing these other things in order to achieve those ends without having to debate the ends themselves. At some point, you may have to debate the ends themselves. And at that point, you just have to shift to a different kind of argument than the one I'm making. Yes, sir. Thank you, Randy. Uh, let me set up. Just for my benefit, can you identify yourself? I, could you identify yourself so I know who you are? Yeah, Keith Horn. From? Uh, NYU Great. Now. Doug Horn yeah. from Kansas City, Missouri. Great. I'd like to set up my question this way. You made the point, first come rights and then government. And interestingly enough, you said it was so obvious to the founding generation the, these concepts or that concept, which seems different than my perspective. They held those truths to be self-evident. There, there it is. So my question is, and what I'm curious about, is what was the basis for this in their culture uh, where they came from in England? Was it their religious culture? Was it their a form of government in, in England? Uh, was it, does the Magna Carta have any influence over the Declaration of Independence? Why did they use these particular words? And uh, in, in, in why was it so obvious to them? And what was it in their, in, and maybe a historical question, of course. Well, you, I, I was, thought you were going one way, then, I, then you seemed to go a different way. Why are these concepts so fundamental to them, or why did they use these particular words? I Sorry, mean, yeah. Which, why, which, why were these concepts so inherently evident and true to them? All right, well, this, was, uh, this is a bigger question than I may be qualified to answer because it's really a matter of intellectual history. But this is, what, this is a product of what's called the Enlightenment, which is an entire chapter of human development in which people start to uh, argue that we can use our reason in order to figure out the way, what's going on. It's, I'm just 
reminded myself of Donald Trump for a minute. Like, We're going to stop this until we figure out what's going on, he said. Stop all immigration until we know what the hell's going on. That's so it's like, we're going to try to figure out what's going on, right? Uh, and so, um, and then they started trying to figure out what's going on. And over a period of centuries, um, uh, they, one theorist after another, refined these ideas to the point where by the time the founders were talking, they had a whole rich intellectual history to draw upon. Now, some of them had an English background and they drew on English philosophers. Some of them had a Scottish background and they drew on Scottish philosophers. And the English, the, the, the English and the Scots were not all the same in terms of what they thought the ultimate basis of all this was. Um, so James Wilson, for example, one of our most forgotten founders, was a Scot. He gave the first lectures on jurisprudence at the University of Pennsylvania, then called the College of Philadelphia. Um, uh, after the, and he was one of the first justices of the Supreme Court, one of the supreme architects of the Constitution. He was a Scot. And then you had others who were more uh, English in their training. Um, but they all were essentially in agreement that there were these fundamental principles and there were these natural rights. So it was the conventional wisdom of the day. It just was the conventional wisdom of the day. And it didn't start to be undermined until later. And how it got undermined is itself a very interesting story, which I don't think I, I certainly don't think I have the full answer to. But in my book, I do talk about uh, the rise of progressivism. Um, and you have a different notion of science that develops. And, and, at, and at that time, people start to question the fundamental nature of these principles. And to the point where we have now, uh, they're very contestable, contested, and where they only started, they actually only started to be rediscovered in the wake of the Nazi atrocities in World War II. When, when people started to say, hey, look, you know what? There really are some things that are wrong, regardless of whether the government did them or whether the government authorized them. There's just something wrong. And that's kind of gave rise to the modern idea of human rights which is okay to talk. Natural rights may seem backwards to talk about. Human rights are perfectly great to talk about. But human rights are a similar concept. First come human rights, then comes government. Yes. Uh, good morning. My name Bar is Mike Landy. I'm a graduate of St. John's University. And my question is about your interpretation of una unalienable rights. Should the government and can the government act against the consent of the governed in protection of these rights? For example, the right to die movement and physician-assisted suicide. Well, um, let me just take your example, uh, because it's kind of a hard question to answer in the abstract. Take your example, right to die and, and physician-assisted suicide. Um, I think that's something about which reasonable people can disagree in the following way. First of all, if you believe in inherent natural rights, you might very well believe that people have a right to end their own life. So you, be, you might be contrary to church teaching that said that suicide was a sin of some kind. And even John Locke argued that suicide was wrong. Um, but you might argue, no, look, it's your life. You have, a you have an opportunity to end it. Now, then the next thing you might say is, but now you, because you can't always end it yourself, you might need assistance in ending it. Like a physician might have to prescribe you some pills, or someone else might have to help you end it. The problem is, is that once you start introducing a third party into the situation, you then introduce the problem of people, of physicians, acting not necessarily because this was the, the will of the patient who wanted to end their life, but because the physician had other uh, commitments. For example, they might have commitments to the family. They might have commitments to the government. 
They might have other commitments in which they, it turns out to be the physician's decision whether to end your life, or the physician might have its own, his, his or her own moral judgment about whether you now have a life worth living, which, by the way, is a very difficult call to make when you get into certain geriatric situations. Um, and the problem then is, at what point is it really the choice of the patient when another party is involved in, op in providing the means by which they die, given the fact that these other parties could conceivably. And there's one other issue to be, uh, and that is that if, uh, that's raised about this, and that is if physicians actually, who are, whose principal mission is the protection of life, start to become in the business of ending life, that that's part of their job profile, that could adversely affect the rest of how they do their job to protect life. For all of these reasons, physician-assisted suicide can be deemed to be problematic from an individual inalienable rights perspective. And sometimes these questions, which are difficult to answer, just have to be answered by what you might call consensus or agreement. That is, they're not the kind of things that can be answered as a matter of first principles. Maybe they can be. Maybe, this, maybe there's an ultimate way of defending this or that, but you can see why as soon as you introduce certain changes into the facts, you might actually have a disagreement over whether physician-assisted suicide really is consistent with the right to life. Thank you. Yes. I'm Ricardo from Brazil. OK, uh, one more thing. Further answer to this question. So what this would argue for is a diversity of legal approaches um, so that we can actually try different things out when we can't be a matter, we can't be absolutely sure of first principles. And a diversity of illegal approaches is what, in my book, I argue that federalism provides. Federalism under our constitutional order, if it were actually followed, which it isn't, would provide 50 legal solutions to these problems, not one. And by providing 50 legal solutions to these problems, you can actually, and you can actually start to figure out, well, really, what is the problem? What isn't the problem? It, a lot of things that we hypothesize being, I just hypothesized a bunch of problems with physician-assisted suicide. Are these real problems or just imaginary problems? You can hypothesize all kinds of problems, right? Well, one way to find out is to try it out. But maybe you don't want to try it out on everybody. And so if you have 50 state solutions, you can have 50 state opportunities to try things out. And then your experience can give you an answer. By the time the, but getting back to the first question of what's self-evidently true, by the time the natural rights people were talking about property, property had been in existence for a millennia. millennia. It had always been in existence. They weren't talking about an institution they invented. They were trying to explain an institution that already existed. So here, you might have different regulatory regimes governing this practice. And after you've seen it, you go, well, it turns out you have it. It works perfectly fine. These fears were only fears, and unjustified fears. But that's a virtue of federalism, which is one of the things that our Republican Constitution offers us. Yes. Um, Ricardo from Brazil. Uh, I think the question is simple. Uh, I wonder if there is a relation between the principles of uh, pursuit of happiness and private property. And if there is, which is this relation especially? Yeah, I think, um, yes, there is. And the concept of private property begins with the concept of self-ownership, that one owns oneself. And in fact, if you want to talk about an inalienable right, that's one of the principal inalienable rights. The right you have to your own person is inalienable in part because it's actually literally impossible to alienate control of yourself. 
unless you were to hook yourself up to some science fiction set of electrodes and stuff so people can start. That would actually, def if they did that, by the way, if you actually hooked yourself up so somebody could use a, a remote control to move you, you'd cease to, be, you, you wouldn't be human anymore. You would just be an automaton of some kind. Maybe not an automaton. I mean, that would mean your auto. I mean, whatever the word would be, you'd be a puppet. You wouldn't be human. It would actually change your nature. But given the nature that we have, we control ourselves. We are self-guiding mechanisms. And therefore, you can't give up the control you have over yourself to somebody else. And so you can't transfer that right. Nor can you give up your moral response. Because you can't give up control, you can't give up your moral responsibility for your actions either. You are going to be responsible for your actions, whether you like it or not. And that's another reason why self-ownership is not alienable to somebody else. Well, so that is pri that's, that's the beginning of property, the private property we have in ourselves. And then a necessary means to the pursuit of happiness is the ability to acquire physical resources and consume them and use them in order to pursue happiness. We just can't, we'll starve to death if we can't do that. So yes, private property, the right to acquire and use property, which is what George Mason referred to it as, is an essential part of the pursuit of happiness. Probably, it is said that one of the reasons why the founders decided not to put property into the Declaration of Independence is because they were afraid that that might be used in defense of slavery. Because if the right of private property was considered to be that sacrosanct, and the right of private property was to be determined by local laws because that's, there were no national property laws, all the laws were local, then slavery being a local law would then have an exalted status uh, because that would be the property that people have and they could not be dispossessed of the property they have in their slaves. Eventually that argument did get made by slave, by, in a pro-slave ideology, but that was at least an explanation for why they de-emphasized it. On the other hand, that same property language um, and all men are born free and equal was put in the Massachusetts con Constitution and it was used to, by the Supreme Court of Massachusetts to abolish slavery uh, in the 1780s. Um, and that might be a reason why Mason's draft was too radical. And even though it was proposed in Congress that it be added as part of the Bill of Rights, it be added as part of an amendment, Congress declined, it was it proposed multiple times. Congress declined to put that language in in 1789 when they were considering amendments, the First Amendment. And one thing, thought about why that might be is it had already proven to be dangerous to slavery. And so the slave states wouldn't have agreed to that language being added by amendment. Yes? Good morning. My name is Alejandro. I'm a rising junior at Embry-Riddle. My question pertains to natural law. In the absence of any written law, are you to suggest that natural law would maintain social order? And is that more of an ideal or is it, uh, I'm trying to understand the practical application. Okay, um, natural law is what you have to do. It, well, let's put it this way. Natural rights are, what you, are the principles you have to, found, uh, to follow if you're going to have a society in which people can pursue happiness. Natural rights are abstract. Um, we know them at an abstract, in an abstract way, and I mean, this is just a cautionary note for libertarians now, because there are libertarians who um, put natural rights and rights generally above everything. Um, and to some degree, I, I, I mean, I'm a libertarian myself, I share this instinct. But the problem here um, is that the rights that we believe in, the rights of property, the rights of contract, the rights of self-defense, 
uh, the right of um, restitution if we have our rights violated. These are our fundamental natural rights that libertarians all believe in. The problem is these rights are very abstract. Now, here's what I mean by abstract. How do we derive natural rights? Actually, how do we also derive natural law principles of ethics? We derive them by abstracting from the particularity of each of us that makes us different to figuring out what we have in common. We abstract from the particulars to figure out what we have in common. All people have in common the following. All people have in common the following. And therefore, on the basis of what we share in common, here is what the common good consists of, the protection of these abstract rights. So the rights become abstract because they apply to everything, everywhere, no matter what time, no matter what technology, no matter what place. But when you then factor into the back, if you then have to take into account the particularities of each one of us and the particularities of the, of the culture and the technology that's available, et cetera, these abstract rights don't automatically apply themselves when the particularities get factored back into the equation. And that's why I say in my book, The Structure of Liberty, that once we have to, we have to move, and the subtitle of that book is Justice and the Rule of Law. And for libertarians, the rule of law is somewhat problematic. Not quite sure how that fits into their libertarianism, which are based entirely on justice, which is based entirely on rights. And what I'm just suggesting to you here is because rights are abstract and because they cannot decide particular questions beyond the more basic ones, like you shouldn't murder somebody, you shouldn't rape somebody, you shouldn't steal somebody, you then need law. You need law to settle some of these questions. I gave an example of that earlier with physician-assisted suicide. And these laws are not going to be the same everywhere at all times. Um, and so this is an argument for why you need law as well as rights. I'll, give you, I'll tell you when I first came across this idea. I was a first-year law student. I was a first-year law student at Harvard Law School. I was being tormented by my professors with all these hypothetical questions about in torts classes about whether this should be a tort or that should be a tort, whether this is negligence or there's strict liability and all this stuff. And I was being tormented. And by happenstance, I happened to meet, uh, be introduced to Murray Rothbard. Now, how many of you have heard of Murray Rothbard? Wow, this is kind of an unrepresentative group, I would say. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Murray Rothbard was, he was this famous radical libertarian economist. And uh, sort of uh, the, and his nickname was Mr. Libertarian. Yeah, that's, how, that's how associated with the modern libertarian movement he was. He was, he was a disciple of Ayn Rand, then he broke from Ayn Rand, and he, set up, and he had his own kind of way thing. And I became acquainted with him when I was a first-year law student. Uh, and actually, I became close to him. But I remember the very first day I met him. Uh, it was at a, it was at a uh, Leonard Liggio, a famous, uh, one of his closest friends, was giving a lecture at Fordham, and I, a friend of mine, a law student friend of mine at Harvard, and I went down to Fordham to hear Le Leonard speak, and Murray was in the audience. And one way thing led to another, and we ended up with Mur in Murray Rothbard's living room that night. And my friend was also a first-year law student, and we started peppering him with the hypothetical questions that we had been peppered with by our professors, thinking, you know, we didn't know the answers, but Mr. Libertarian would know. And when we started asking Murray all these questions, he kept saying, what? I don't know, I, I don't know. I mean, he, he didn't know either. He didn't know either. And, we thought, and at that point, the seed was planted that the most rigorous, hard, 
knowledge of natural rights that one can have is not enough to answer all the particular questions about you do this way or do it that way and this way and that way. And so ultimately what this grew into was my thesis, uh, not unique to me, but the one I defend in my book, and that is that you need conventional rules of law to settle these things when there is no abstract answer to the question. For example, let me give you one more example, then we'll move on to another question. We all understand that you can own something. We all understand that you can abandon what you can own, right? Now, one way to get rid of something you own is to give it away. You know, you, you take it to goodwill, you hand it to the guy, and now it's theirs. You've given it away. That's clear. Now, what happens if you abandon something just by walking away from it? So you abandon your homestead, you abandon your house, you just, you just go away, and you don't come back. Well, we all go away from our property, and then we come back. Sometimes we go away for a long time, and then we come back. What happens if we go away, and we don't come back? At what point is it abandoned? How long does it take? One year? Two years? Three years? Four years? Try to derive the years from natural rights. You can't. You can derive the proposition that property is owned. You can derive the proposition that you, that you ought to be able to leave your property and it's still yours when you come back. You can derive the proposition that you ought to be able to abandon your property so other people can use it. But you can't derive the proposition of how long you have to be away from it in order to abandon it. So as a result, this is called in property law the law of adverse possession. If somebody comes on and takes over somebody's place, which doesn't look like it's being occupied, they have to sit there and occupy it for a certain length of time without the other property owner coming back and objecting to it. And if they do for that length of time, it's theirs. And that length of time will vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Sometimes it's seven years. Sometimes it's 14 years. There's no natural rights answer to this question. There needs to be a legal answer to this question. And this should illustrate to the most hardcore libertarian that you need law. And the law is going to be, to some degree, artificially constructed to implement the rights. Now, the final thing I'll say is, what, th what then is the relationship of the law that's now created to the rights? And that is, the rights provide an outer boundary within which you can from which you can critique the law. So you could say that if you abandon something in five minutes, or you abandon something in a week, that can't be right because that's inconsistent with the first principles of why we have property in the first place. So at the extremes, you can criticize law for being violating rights. But at the margins, you really don't know. And to some degree, you just need to have consensus. OK, it's going to be seven. We just need to know how many years it is. Seven, nine, 14. Just tell me how much it is, and we can live with it. Does that help? Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Yes, sir. When did the uh, natural law, natural rights framework fall out of favor with the Supreme Court, and why? Um, it was actually pretty in favor. First of all, you, you should know that it stayed in favor for a very long time. It was clearly in favor uh, during the Reconstruction period when the radical Republicans, and just Republicans generally, wrote the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Their debates are replete with discussions of natural rights. Um, and so it was still in favor then. But with the rise of progressivism and the sort of the new scientific approach to things, um, it started to be attacked as a retrograde. Um, and the Supreme Court resisted this uh, for some time on the basis of natural rights. And it was only through a succession of presidential elections, which I talk about in my book, 
that progressive presidents nominated enough justices to overcome this idea. And it, it didn't all happen in 1937 when Franklin Roosevelt was president. It started with T Teddy Roosevelt, who was a progressive. Um, and in fact, he ran as a third party progressive when the Republicans denied him uh, another t chance at the White House. He first ran for, as a Republican in the primary, then he ran as a progressive, and then running as, uh, he founded the Progressive Party, which split the Republican vote and allowed Woodrow Wilson, a progressive, to become elected. That's the second one. And then Herbert Hoover was also a progressive um, who had worked in the Wilson administration. Um, and then finally, Roosevelt. You had four pre pre progressive presidents, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, appointing justices who eventually accepted the proposition that these natural rights are not something that we should be thinking about. Not, not that they ever were specifically enforcing natural rights. Not that I think they should be enforcing natural rights directly. I, I should probably make that clear. I don't think judges should be devising natural rights and enforcing them for the very reason I just said. They're too abstract to be d d d done that way. That's not how we do it. Maybe, after, maybe tomorrow's lecture will make it clearer how we do it in our constitutional order. Um, but having said that, I think they still were thought to be in the background until eventually the justices, uh, these four presidents appointed enough justices um, where this idea of a limited constitution, our Republican constitution, along with natural rights, tended to be abandoned. Last um, question. Work. Look how perfectly this works, like a natural law, <laughs> the natural order of things. Uh, I'm Dan McGuire from New Hampshire. Um, has anyone ever won a court case with an argument based on the Declaration of Independence? Um, I doubt it. Um, I can't say, you never say never, um, but uh, that's what Sean Connery once was quoted as saying, never say never. Then he came back, never say never about playing James Bond, then he came back and played James Bond again uh, in a book, in a movie called Never Say Never. Um, so uh, I doubt that they have, um, and I doubt that they should. Um, what I, I cite the Declaration for as establishing the fundamental political principles of the country, which were then implemented first by the Articles of Confederation and state constitutions which were highly democratic, and then by a new constitution. And, and it was the democratic nature, of, as I will talk about tomorrow, it was the democratic nature of state constitutions that, the found, that those who wrote the American Constitution thought were the source of their problems. So they created a new form of Republican government, the US Constitution, um, to supersede state constitutions, at least on some issues they deemed to be important. Um, and that's the law of the land. I mean, this is, this is last point I'll make. And I'll, take, I'll talk about, I'll probably reiterate this tomorrow. This is the law that governs those who govern us. This is not the law that governs us. This is not the law that governs us. This is the law that governs those who govern us. And we talk, I said before that unanimous consent is impossible to be achieved, and so that's why it's not demanded. But you know what? When it comes to the people who govern us, there is unanimous consent to follow this law, because each and every officer and I don't mean employee, but I mean officer, each and every officer of the US government and of state governments take a personal individual oath to follow this law. You actually have unanimous consent to follow this law. And that means, by the way, that they shouldn't be able to change the law that governs them without going through the amendment process any more than we should change, be able to change the laws that they make to govern us without going through the legislative process. And that's why the meaning of this text should remain the same until it's properly changed. But this is the law that you assert in court, which and, and the Declaration is important to understand 
the nature and purpose of this law. Because there are lots of provisions of this law that are contestable, what they really mean, what they're really about. And the relationship of this law to the Declaration, as, and I believe Justice Thomas, for example, believes this as well, the relationship of this law to the Declaration, or should say, the Declaration helps us understand the meaning of this when it's contested. Um, and so for that reason, um, for example, what does the Necessary and Proper Clause mean? The Necessary and Proper Clause says that Congress shall have power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution and government of the United States. So what is necessary and proper? What is proper? Doesn't tell you, right? Well, understanding the Constitution in light of this as the founding document helps us understand what necessary and proper, and in particular, what proper might mean. And going back to what just powers are, Congress should only have just powers. State legislatures should only have just powers. Anyway, uh, the answer to your question is, I doubt anyone has won a case citing the Declaration. Um, but um, they have won cases citing this. And to understand what this means, you need to know about the Declaration. Thank you. <laughs>